Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 1st of June 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure, of course, from north of the border. Uh, well, we're going to start, Brian, with uh, the Simon uh, Dolan uh, legal case. This is uh, joined the legal challenge to the UK government lockdown, doing very well on uh, crowd justice, uh, crowdfunding website. Uh, well, they're also doing very well because they have managed to get the government to release the minutes of the SAGE meetings. Uh, this is part of the, the first success of this, uh, of this legal uh, action so far. Um, and uh, well, what is it about? Well, they're saying that we believe that the government has acted illegally and disproportionately over the COVID-19 lockdown and we're taking action by forcing people to stay at home and forcing business to close. Uh, they are, we believe, in contravention of basic human rights offered under English law uh, and that of uh, the right to enjoy your property peacefully and so on. Right. So now the government has released the SAGE minutes. Uh, here they are. Uh, if you want to search for it, look for Transparency and Freedom of Information releases on the gov.uk website. Uh, and uh, well, we haven't had much time to look at these in detail yet. Uh, others have, uh, have uh, well, as we'll come on to in a second, done a little more, a bit more analysis of them. But uh, one thing that did uh, jump out at us, uh, and thanks to um, our researchers who noticed this, the conclusion that the introduction of bubbles is not straightforward. Uh, the conclusion is that the introduction of bubbles is not straightforward and carries potential unforeseen risks. SAGE can undertake more work on this and would advise understanding this more to inform any decision. Now, that, that was the minutes of the 7th of May. Uh, and as we've been reporting, Brian, uh, the government has, uh, has continued to pursue this notion of bubbles over the last couple of weeks. Yep. Uh, and it looks like they're going to go ahead uh, with that. Now, the question is, are they going ahead of, with that in spite of Sage's advice? Uh, because uh, what a number of people, uh, including uh, this uh, blogger here, Paul uh, Chaplin, have pointed out, of course, is that when Boris initiated the lockdown, um, he did so against Sage's advice. Uh, and we'll bring David Scott in in a second. But uh, one of the point discussions that David and I have been having of, since the beginning of this, since, since the 23rd of March, really was that, of course, Boris was pursuing a particular uh, policy up until that point uh, and suddenly did a 180-degree U-turn on, uh, on the policy and decided to uh, impose the lockdown. Uh, so uh, Paul uh, goes through uh, a timeline, really, a very beginning with 17 days uh, towards the lockdown, reading through the SAGE uh, minutes, highlighting the key points. Uh, and at the end of the process, he comes up with uh, a number of questions. Uh, and he's asking at the end, uh, in the three days leading up to the lockdown on the 23rd, so that's between the 19th and the 22nd of March 2020, he wants to know who was making the decisions about Britain's future. Uh, where are those decisions minuted? Uh, what non-SAGE scientific advice was provided? Uh, or was there no scientific advice at all? And he is suggesting here that that answers itself because if you look at the timeline, and I strongly recommend people to go and do look at this, it's pretty clear that the final decision wasn't based on the scientific advice at all. Uh, and uh, why was the SAGE advice not to lock down ignored? Um, David, uh, let's bring you onto the programme at this point. Uh, this is a massive success for Simon Dolan and the legal case to get these minutes released because initially Sage were refusing to do so. They've been released and it's just as bad as we suspected, actually. It is. Um, 
and it is a it is a huge victory because so much is uh, completely opaque these days. We don't know really who is governing governing us. We don't know what they believe. We don't know what motivates them, and we don't know what the decisions are because it's so often unminuted or behind closed doors or in secret. We're governed in secret. So to get some uh, some insight into this is tremendously valuable. But I, th um, I think we have to add and recognise, uh, David, that this has had to be forced out of the government. The whole country shut down, the destruction quite unbelievable. Tens of thousands of people have died unnecessarily due to lockdown. But the public and somebody who's got money has had to force the government to actually become transparent. This is the real issue. We've got a secretive uh, government of occupation operating in secret. Uh, absolutely. I would just say, of course, he only has the money because of the, the generosity of many, many people, because lots and lots of people. That, and if anybody wants to take some something positive out of this, the response that he's had to his crowdfunding yeah. uh, demonstrates that there are a lot of people in this country that agree that this lockdown was disproportionate uh, and uh, and they put their, their hands in their pockets to help bring that out and challenge it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. In the meantime, then today, of course, uh, 1st of June, uh, many schools reopening, uh, some schools not actually uh, having pupils back today, some schools having pupils back next week because they're still preparing for that situation. And the question on many people's minds is, is it safe? We would argue that it is. But uh, as a result of a lot of the propaganda through the mainstream press and so on, lots of people still very concerned about it. So uh, this organization, uh, the uh, NFER, has, uh, has uh, they call themselves the leading independent provider of education, research and insights. They've done a survey on this and they're saying that about 50% uh, of uh, parents, parents are planning to keep their children away from home uh, when the schools open today. Uh, and uh, they're saying, you know, really that this is as a result of some people not really quite getting to grips with what is correct uh, with respect to this. And who can blame them? Because they've been bombarded with so much bad information through the mainstream press. Uh, and David, uh, you know, both you and I have family members that are in the education sector. Um, it seems that, that the schools have, have been sort of forced to reopen by the, the government. Uh, they don't really know how they're going to fulfill the requirements that the government is setting on them to socially distance with, you know, four, five, six, seven-year-old children. Um, the whole thing is nonsense, aside from the fact that uh, parents are being uh, encouraged to believe that it's dangerous to send their children to school in the first place. Well, nonsense on a good day, uh, because a lot of the social distancing measures that we're now seeming to be imposing on children uh, are potentially psychologically very harmful. What happens if you take an entire generation and tell them that coming into contact with another human being uh, could kill them? What does that do? We've never tried that before. I think that's... Uh... Well, the silence says it all, David, <laughs> yes. because it is immensely difficult, uh, immensely dangerous. Uh, we've got some uh, comments a bit later from a journalist who's written an article for The Telegraph, but in her article, it's clear that she doesn't understand everything that's taken place. 
and uh, there's a lot that's happened and we don't know what the effects are going to be longer term. Um, but David, even when people do go out of their way to try to uh, fulfil the obligations that the government is attempting to impose on them, to socially distance and so on, it doesn't always work out. So uh, here's a quick story from Scotland uh, on the Venus Gym. Yes, the Venus Gym's in Johnson and Renfrewshire, and uh, Andrea and John Porter, who, who run, own and run the gym, uh, were doing everything possible to, uh, to keep trading in very modified ways, um, and to the benefit of uh, some people, some disabled people, for example, who were using the gym as their only form of exercise. And uh, then they were shut down by the authorities. We will look at this more in extra time, but we have a short clip just now, as, as uh, I discussed with them over the weekend, what had happened and uh, what they thought needs to be done. Okay, let's have a look at that. And, and the thing is, unless people get some kind of, of sense of this isn't a particularly fearful disease, you shouldn't be terrified to meet other human beings and you should get on with your life. We're gonna we're, we're probably gonna go under if people don't come back to gyms. Yeah. And what would you say to the political leaders that have um created all of this, what, what message would you give them now from what you can see on the ground? Um, well, I would say stop trying to save face. Admit that some of the information you've been given wasn't quite right, and then you know, reassess the evidence that's there and make proper intelligent decisions. That's what I would ask them to So, David, a uh, uh, very, very astute comments there. But uh, uh, you know, you were mentioning the fact that uh, disabled people were relying on this. Uh, I know, just just a bit of anecdotal information here. Uh, a couple of people that that rely on these types of facilities or physiotherapists and so on just to continue existing, and they're really struggling at this point in time. It is. It's this is one of the effects of lockdown, which is effect, which is really pretty. Uh, it's hidden. It's not something that the mainstream press are discussing. And of course, it's making people's lives very, very difficult. In fact, hellish, I would say. Uh, and, and one of the aspects that at the more extreme end is resulting to with people not seeking proper, proper medical assistance and ended, ending up dying. Yes, and the response um, from the authorities was the response of, we must follow the rules. So. What you're ex expressing there, what uh, what uh, Andrea and John Porter were expressing, was a reasoned response, which has care and consideration for individual human beings, and that was verboten. That was not allowed. We must follow the rules. The rules are absolute. The rules are inflexible. The rules are not like laws because laws always have a context of higher law and reasonable tests and things which can override a law if there's something more pressing which is is part of the judgment and require judgment rules don't require judgment rules just require obedience and this is the problem we're having uh, indeed uh, sorry did you want to comment? well i just wanted to add to that and, and we need to remember what's actually happening um, around officials in, in the way they do their work and two that come to mind is that 
traffic wardens have now become traffic enforcement officers so we've got the word force in there and we've got the border force instead of customs and excise or whoever was looking after our borders we're now into border force and if you see one of their vehicles that's what it says on the side this is deliberate intimidation um, but speaking of uh, following the rules uh, David um, Nicholas Sturgeon very keen to make sure that people follow the rules Absolutely. She's tweeting here a reminder that you should not be flocking to beauty and tourist spots or travelling more than five miles from your home for leisure and recreation. Doing so puts yourself and others at risk, which doesn't say how, and increases the chance of restrictions having to be reapplied. That is a threat of collective punishment. Uh, That's unlawful. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, uh, let's move on to another subject. Uh, back in April, uh, the Metro published uh, this. Top lawyer says trials should be held without juries during the pandemic. Um, and uh, well, this is uh, uh, sorry, this is uh, this gentleman, uh, Sir Richard Enriques, if that's how you pronounce Enrique, his name. Yeah. yeah, he's now a retired judge. But just to give a little bit of background, of course, he led the uh, prosecution uh, in the James Bulger murder trial. Uh, he also prosecuted the serial killer, Dr. Harold Shipman. Uh, he then became a, court, a Crown Court recorder. He became a High Court judge, ended up in the Queen's Bench Division and retired in November 2013. But probably his most notoriety comes from uh, the running the uh, investigation into the conduct of the Metropolitan Police um, over this uh, historical sexual abuse allegations against persons of public importance uh, and uh, well there was plenty to criticize in the result of that uh, but nonetheless he's been pushing for quite some time the last few weeks uh, to remove juries from the system and he was doing so again on this morning's Radio 4 uh, Today program because he's extremely concerned that uh, there is a ma massive backlog in criminal cases in the UK. Now he admits uh, that this backlog has been building for quite some time, but he's saying that under the lockdown, the backlog is growing by a thousand cases per week, uh, and he believes that there is no possibility of the of the uh, court system ever catching up uh, with this backlog of courses and uh, of cases unless juries are removed from the system. So he says that judge-only cases are the only way to deal with the backlog of criminal cases, and in order to justify it. Uh, before I ask David for, co for comment here, in order to justify it, he said courts in Northern Ireland demonstrate that judge-only courts can work. So, David, this man is using the Diplock courts in Northern Ireland as justification for removal of juries. Uh, and, of course, the, the motivation for doing that is that under, under the lockdown, cases just can't run uh, there, and there isn't going to be time to catch up on the backlog. Well, there we have it. The uh, removal of all of our rights, of all of the protections that uh, generations uh, of, uh, of gallant British people created, um, often uh, costing their lives in doing so, will be surrendered because it's inconvenient. We have a scheduling problem, and we will just rubbish our ancient protection. I would point out that if it wasn't for juries, Alex Salmon would be in jail, um, almost certainly for a number of years, with a conviction for attempted rape, I would think. But the jury looked at that and thought, no, the case is nowhere near proven by the, by the, by the Crown. 
This is nonsense. If there had been a jury, Robert Greene would have never been in jail. Um, juries are our protection against an overbearing state. And frankly, I don't care how much inconvenience it costs. Uh, we need to keep them. Um, absolutely. And the other point to make about juries, of course, is that they do have the, as you say, law has context, so does legislation. So juries do have the power to uh, annul bad legislation. Um, I would ask you, David, do you think that a judge uh, would be prepared to annul bad legislation or would he simply look at the, the, the letters on the page? Who pays his salary? Do, we, do, people, do, do human beings respond to incentives? Yes, they do. Does the judge have a conflict of interest if his salary is paid by the state? Yes, he does. It's unreasonable to expect judges to do that. It is reasonable to expect volunteer jurors who value the traditions and know what it is to be British, have it in, understand it in ways that are ordinary and apparently mundane, but actually much deeper. Absolutely. And can we, can we just add to that that the UK column has still been unable to find out uh, not who appoints judges because they're appointed via the uh, Judicial Appointments Commission, but who appoints the Judicial Appointments Commission. We're still unable to find this out. So if you follow it through, who is actually in control of judges, it becomes totally secret. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, OK, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. Uh, and there are options for doing that there. Now, uh, last week uh, we were highlighting this, the fact that uh, a lot of organisations are assisting with the government's contact tracing uh, apps, uh, feeding the data into uh, J-Hub, which of course is the Ministry of Defence. The Ministry of Defence then stripping off uh, any personally identifiable information and sending that on to NHSX uh, for analysis. Uh, and this, of course, gives NHSX the opportunity to claim that uh, all the necessary uh, data protection legislation is being complied with. Uh, but our question was, uh, what is uh, J-Hub going to do with that information? Does that go somewhere else? Does it perhaps go to GCHQ for analysis, uh, security services and so on? Um, well, maybe we get a clue from the United States, David, and this brings us uh, into the US riots that are going on over there at the moment. Uh, and uh, well, this uh, article appeared from BGR. Minnesota is now using contact tracing to track protesters as demonstrations uh, Escalate. Now, this, of course, is as a result of the uh, killing of uh, George Floyd. Um, and what this article is saying is that Minnesota officials said they're using contact tracing to better understand who the protesters are and where they're coming from. Uh, contact tracing had previously been used as part of a comprehensive uh, coronavirus response. According to Minnesota Public Safety Commissioner John Harrington, officials there have been using what they describe without going into much detail as contact tracing in order to build out a picture of protester affiliations. Now, a lot of people commenting on this on social media over the weekend and getting a bit bemused that the term contact using, uh, tracing was being used in this context uh, because they're concerned that, that this is going to uh, uh, increase the amount of uh, concern, public concern and discussion over what happens to data uh, as a result of contact tracing and whether the contact tracing for the coronavirus uh, situation is, is really softening us up for a much broader 
surveillance application. Uh, yeah. And we'll see. We'll hear a bit more of that uh, shortly. But David, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that first of all. It's very striking. This is uh, this is a Scottish model of government. This is fusion doctrine. This is joined up government to the ultimate degree. There are no functional departments or boundaries within government. It is all one joined up information sharing organism. So you provide it with information on your health and they will use it to track you down if you attend a protest that turns violent. And you may well be asked very serious questions about your conduct that you wouldn't be asked if you hadn't shared your medical information. These are the problems we're having to face. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, well, I just wanted to bring this up as well, David, because uh, uh, obviously a lot going on in the United States with, with the riots and so on. But uh, Vox here claiming that police have been targeting journalists covering the George Floyd protests. Um, I would suggest that perhaps we've seen this type of thing going on in France as well with the uh, Yellow Vests protests too, uh, where journalists were being targeted by the French authorities. Uh, now Vox here making the point that of course this has happened in the past, um, but they're saying they're highlighting a number of. I mean, most of this article is is listing individual cases, individual injuries, and so on. Uh, they're saying that across the country, journalists have been targeted by police facing arrest, detention and violence, including pepper sprayed, uh, shot by rubber bullets, uh, targeted by police in the Ferguson process in 2015 and during uh, the uh, civil rights era. So perhaps not something new, but nonetheless disturbing if it's true. I mean, what the main case they're highlighting is, is a journalist called uh, Linda Torado, who's apparently a photojournalist who's apparently lost an eye as a result of being hit in the face with a, uh, a plastic bullet. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit ironic that, that uh, Britain and the United States, well, Britain and Canada were leading it, but the United States was certainly part of it, uh, were highlighting the, the, the risks to journalists by uh, public authorities in uh, various tin pot dictatorships around the world. Uh, surely the United States should be setting the, uh, the example here, or maybe they are. Well, they're not, a, they're not a tin pot dictatorship, but there may be a shiny aluminium dictatorship, and perhaps we are too. Um, we, we've obviously old enough, Mike, you and I, to remember the bad old days in Ulster when uh, there was a lot of controversy how you use baton rounds, and it was quite clear if, if they're not aimed low, they can be fatal. So this poor journalist has lost an eye. That's, that's, that, that's tremendously um, concerning. It could have been her life. I, I did see did see videos of what would what appeared to be um, the police in America in one city doing drive-by baton rounds, driving driving a squad car down the street and firing baton rounds out the window. And um, there's been huge and, and really concerning scenes of feral pack attacks by the rioters as well. So there's plenty of blame to go around, but. There is certainly some of the conduct by what should be a disciplined force seems to be anything but disciplined and not not considering the likely consequences of their actions. Uh, absolutely. Um, sorry. No, no, it's okay. It's fine. Yeah, okay. Well, look, uh, staying in the US, but moving on. Uh, this is courts. Personal income in the United States shot up a record 10.5% in April. Uh, and uh, many people wondering how this could be. So they, they produced a graph. This is from the uh, United States uh, equivalent of the Office for National Statistics, uh, showing U U.S. personal income has shot up there. Uh, and so the question is why? Uh, well, it was mainly due to government payments, uh, of course, uh, helping Americans 
uh, cope with the uh, COVID-19 situation. Um, and, uh, well, uh, government benefits as a percentage of personal income increased from, what's that, about 15% uh, uh, up to uh, around 30%. Um, as a result. So this is unemployment. Aside from the government uh, money, there's also unemployment insurance payments uh, rising by 500% to $430 billion in April. So as a result of all this, uh, individually, people have been doing very well, but that isn't going to last. This is incredible. Up. I mean, not, they're not even keeping it steady. Up. It, the, the idea is seems to be now that we can we can live just by printing bits of bits of green paper and as long as the as long as the presses start uh, keep rolling everything will be fine the real economy no longer matters this will end horribly because eventually the green paper will still come it just won't buy anything there's only one way this ends and um, it's it's devaluing the currency uh, and we've seen it before, uh, but Sweden uh, seems to still have a real economy, David. Sweden does. All of the uh, wise uh, economists, or most of them, predicted with great confidence that Sweden would be into recession, the same as the rest of Europe. But actually, it's not. The first quarter of the year, the Swedish economy, despite COVID-19, actually grew at an annualised 0.4%. So not a lot of growth, but it is growth against the background of sharp recession in Britain, France, Germany, the rest of Europe, United States. Uh, so the, the Swedish decision not to wreck their own economy is uh, certainly achieving one of its aims, which is not to wreck their own economy. Uh, indeed. Well, let's come back to the UK then and uh, the Telegraph here. Now, the reason we're putting this up is because Sajid Javid was writing for the Telegraph. Uh, Sajid Javid, of course, the Home Secretary. We must expose the hidden horror of child abuse uh, under lockdown. Uh, and he's saying that the economic impact of uh, lockdown is going to really pale in comparison to the perfect storm, uh, leaving vulnerable children isolating alongside their abusers. Uh, and uh, he said, when you read the word paedophile, chances are that the abuser you imagine is the lone pervert acting in isolation. The distress truth, however, uh, is that stranger danger isn't the most prevalent threat. He doesn't at any point hint that the most prevalent threat might be uh, VIP MP danger rather than stranger danger. Know that he's, he's trying to spread this out across the country uh, and arguing that uh, most of the problem is uh, as a result of lockdown uh, and, uh, and individuals uh, being locked up with family members. Yeah, and we just emphasise again that Thames Valley Police in particular have been uh, extremely concerned. They are reporting a five, around about a 500% increase in abuse of children since lockdown. But what they've been saying is that every, every way they turn, however they try to get attention to deal with this, there has been a stunning silence, including, of course, from the government. Now, all of a sudden, we've, we've got this amazing turnaround. And I'm going to say, I wonder whether we're going to see this is going to be twisted into we need more social workers in schools, which has been policy going on in the background. And that would give us a nice little sort of English model of the named person scheme, which um, you have done such good work on up in um, Scotland, David. It's also striking that he's, he's very vague about what the mechanisms are here. 
he's saying, well, the lockdown is causing more harm to children. And, and that's true. It is. And I'm glad he's saying that. But he then seems to stop because exactly what, what came out of the Thames Valley Police was very interesting. How? What's the mechanism? Well, one of the mechanisms is everything is moved online and the grooming and the abuse is online. So vulnerable children have been picked up by a huge spike in online grooming. I don't think he said that. He didn't actually bring that one forward. And the other thing is, the most vulnerable of all are children in care situations, because the child trafficking networks and grooming networks have penetrated the care system, and the children have been trafficked out of the care homes. Now, this has been going on, but now, when the links to family members and friends have been severed by COVID-19, they're all the more vulnerable. So there's a huge spike in care home trafficking uh, for for the for children that are in the worst of possible possible um, situation in terms of in terms of adult care anyway, and uh, he's not mentioning that explicitly. So it, it needs to be more accurate. It needs to be more detailed. Uh, well, we'll find out whether it will be because he is now uh, going to lead what he's describing as a no holds barred investigation into child abuse in. Uh, in Britain, alongside the Centre for Social Justice think tank. Uh, and he said that this inquiry will not be impeded by cultural and political sensitivities. Um, so what it looks like is that we're heading towards uh, trying to divert attention away from the things that you've just uh, spoken about, David, uh, care homes and, and so on, and institutional problems, uh, into back into the homes. And as I say, he's attempting to say that uh, uh, stranger danger isn't the most prevalent threat. Uh, he's implying that this is uh, going to be a problem with families uh, and perhaps it's going to be, as Brian suggests, going to need to be much more intervention at a family level. And let's not worry too much about what's going on uh, in care homes or through care homes. Yeah. Um, so where does that take us? Well, just a switch of subject, but uh, a lot of people still wearing masks. And it was pointed out to us uh, a couple of days ago that on the London Underground, it's the thing to be wearing masks. This was an article back um, on the 12th of May, I think, yeah, from the Evening Standard. Government urging people in England to use face coverings in confined areas such as public transport and Transport for London has said that face masks should be worn on all London Underground and bus services in the capital to curb the spread of COVID-19. The question is, though, are the masks themselves safe? Well, we got exploring. We decided to go straight to Transport for London. So we sent them an email saying that we understood that Transport for London had made the wearing of masks by passengers on underground trains compulsory. But many medical experts are warning and have been warning for some time about the dangers of masks. And this is really that you're breathing in your own stale air. So you've got limited oxygen and you're also breathing in CO2. Um, well, what was the response? We asked, sorry, we asked for the medical risk assessment. What risk assessment had been done to say that it was safe for people to wear masks, particularly when it's hot on the underground you're in some pretty unpleasant air anyway. To be wearing a mask um, is something else. Well, the reply to date has been silence. We've sent a chase up email, but no reply as to where their medical risk assessment was. But the two things that uh, medical experts who've been advising UK column had highlighted, the dangers of uh, hypoxia, where you're restricting uh, oxygen, 
and hypocapnia uh, where you're taking in your own CO2. But the result of both these things happening is suppression of your immune system. So if you uh, are a carrier of COVID, albeit with no symptoms, you're going to be in a worse state. Or if you're elderly or you've got some sort of bronchial condition, you're going to be in a worse state. So just to uh, push this home, here's the British Medical Journal uh, carrying an article which is saying that wearing a mask makes exhaled air go into the eyes. This can make you want to touch your eyes. And if you've got contamination on your hands, you're going to be uh, reinfecting yourself. And here, face masks making breathing more difficult. For people with COPD, face masks are in fact intolerable. Moreover, a fraction of carbon dioxide previously exhaled exhaled is inhaled at each respiratory cycle and it goes on to say this may also worsen the clinical condition of infected people if the enhanced breathing pushes the viral load down into their lungs this is because you're not clearing the body of the virus it's staying inside the face mask and another one here and this one is a bit more blunt it said it would be a paradox if masks and respirators worked Given what we know about viral respiratory diseases, the main transmission path is long residence time aerosol particles, which are too fine to be blocked. So no messing around there. The masks present a, a definite risk to the wearer and they can't protect against the viruses anyway. Mm. Uh, David, uh, that leads into the question of uh, deaths. Uh, and well, BBC Future, uh, not a section of the BBC that I was aware of terribly, uh, but uh, they're saying why most COVID-19 deaths won't be from the virus. Could it be that the BBC is agreeing with us? Well, this was a kind of striking conclusion that I came to. And well, kind of. Uh, so they, they, they say here, well, from a famine of inverted commas, biblical proportions to a deluge of undiagnosed cancers, Whilst we're all worrying about coronavirus, most fatalities could be collateral damage. So, in that regard, they are actually agreeing with the UK column. However, um, they go on to say things like um, uh, the, uh, they're talking about schools being shut. This is, it can be small things actually that have a big impact. For example, if you insist that international truck drivers have to go into quarantine, new supply chain breakdown. So in South Africa, we've been persuading governments to issue letters to certain contracted transporters guaranteeing their drivers' rights of passage. This is a little example of, the, of where they go with this. Um, their concerns are, well, it might, it might mean there's not enough vaccines. We might, we might not be giving enough vaccine to infants, so we're going to have disease. There might not be enough government control of various things, so we're going to have supply breakdown because of lack of government control or too much government control, but lack of uh, in, you know, intelligent government control because of the panic over coronavirus. So they're seeing some of the problems, but all of the solutions that they're seeing are big government solutions. They can't seem to see past that. They can't seem to see how a society um, that is free would function in a whole lot of ways that you can't do if you're trying to centrally control it. So they seem a bit restricted, but they are seeing at least some of the problems that coronavirus is going to kill a few people and that the state response to coronavirus is going to kill many more. They are starting to acknowledge this fact. Okay, so who is BBC Future then? Well, I was wondering that. Um, they are. 
an award-winning science site, BBC Future, because I thought with BBC Future, what is this? Are we into uh, what tarot card reading, or are we are we into prophecy? I didn't know. Uh, it transpires they're committed to bringing you evidence-based analysis and myth-busting stories. Isn't that a strange phrase? Myth-busting stories around the new coronavirus. You can read more of our COVID-19 coverage here. So it seems to be um, a, uh, a part of the BBC inspired built by the coronavirus. I mean, it may be that coronavirus now has its own broadcasting. We knew it can hire brands, but it now may, may have its own broadcasting capability. Uh, they say, we believe in truth, facts and science. We take time to think and we don't accept we ask why. So it's a very good idea. Uh, and they, they say that um, what links them all is our approach to evidence-based analysis. Now, evidence-based analysis means you don't have any theory. You just follow a certain line of testing. And because you can't know what to test because the world is too complicated. The decision on what to test drives you down a certain line. You're just not you're not basing that on any expressed theory. It's a secret underlying theory. So evidence based is a questionable issue. Um, they, they, as well as that, though, they're going to have original thinking and powerful storytelling. So there we go. That's what they're about. Stories, telling stories. Excellent. <laughs> Okay, okay, well, let's tell a story then. Uh, this is from uh, highlighted by the Strategic Culture Foundation, uh, which one of those organizations that definitely gets uh, a hit from, you know, the, the, the usual prop or not crowd as being some kind of Russian disinformation outlet. But anyway, you people can make up their own minds on this. But this, this article says uh, German official leaks report denouncing Corona as a global false alarm. Yes, and they go on, they, they, they summarise the report, which is 93 pages long and in German, and I'm not Alex Thompson, so therefore I'm toiling a little bit. But they summarise it in English. They say the dangerousness of COVID-19 was overestimated. Probably at no point did the danger posed by the new virus go beyond the normal level. The people who die from corona are essentially those who would statistically die this year because they've reached the end of their lives and their weakened bodies can no longer cope with any random everyday stress, including the approximately 150 viruses currently in circulation. Worldwide, within a quarter of a year, there's been no more than 250,000 deaths from COVID-19 compared to 1.5 million during the influenza wave in 1718. The danger is obviously no greater than for many other viruses, and there is evidence that this was no more than a false alarm. Uh, a reproach could go along these lines. During the corona crisis, the state has proved itself as one of the biggest producers of fake news. And I was looking at uh, the, the, the report in German, and just a preliminary remark at the start of the report reads as follows. The task and goal of crisis teams in any crisis management is, is, is to make the crisis special, recognize the dangers and fight them until the normal state is reached again. So a normal state cannot be a crisis. So this report is arguing that what we see here is a normal state of winter flu, and it cannot be a crisis, and it's been treated in an abnormal and inappropriate way. There's been very little reporting on this um, leaked report and the press release from the scientists who, um, who, who, who wrote it. Apart from RT German uh, channel, they've reported a little bit. Um, um, the, the scientists are asking asking the, the politicians, don't ignore the expertise. Um, this, this relates to the point you started on, Mike, with the SAGE minutes, where it seems that we, 
we in Britain also ignored the expertise and the political decision was made on something else. Um, the um, press release in, in detail says therapeutic and preventative measures should never bring more harm than the illness itself. And it goes on for pleading that this, this be taken seriously. And that's the core issue. Has the response to coronavirus caused more harm than, um, than the illness itself? I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, I'm pretty sure the answer to that is yes. A little bit of a recap as to what's going on and what we think is going on with coronavirus. Um, on Friday, this uh, excellent uh, slide appeared on the UK Column News, the conga line of 100 people during the UK COVID pandemic. And what's it really showing that uh, the risk of dying from COVID-19 uh, very, very small, just the little bit of red circle there amongst the 100 people. And I think we're looking at a statistic, please correct me if I'm wrong here, Mike, but we're looking at 0.26% uh, mm. from those that have uh, got the virus and are suffering from the symptoms. So um, what is going on? Well, Friday's UK Column News raised a lot of very interesting things. We've got the chaos over lockdown, but nobody understands what lockdown is. The virus is apparently not prevalent in supermarkets, but if you try and get your hair cut, it's going to be popping into the barbers uh, uh, as quickly as that. So confusion there. But what has the government been driving skewed statistics which is simply not giving us the true picture because the virus has been declining for weeks and yet we're bottom right still in uh, level four, which is a, a heavy lockdown according to the government with no sign of that shifting, although we are allowed out to play provided we stay two metres apart. And of course, uh, the news correctly showed that a number of um, experts are saying what on earth is going on, this can't be for real. And there was a little bit of black humour saying as well that this might be um, the, the Dunning, <coughs> excuse me, the Dunning-Kruger effect. And uh, basically the government doesn't quite know what it's up to. It's incompetent. Well, that may be the case, but that's the background. Uh, is it incompetence and cock up? Well, some would say so. We don't think so because the government is clearly manipulating these statistics. We know it's doing that to heighten the fear factor because that's what the behavioural insights input into the SAGE team was doing and the government wants to extend lockdown, but why? So we thought we'd just take a look at the COVID-19 smokescreen and what's behind it and see where we get to. So we can put the smokescreen on screen as it were so here it is with some of those graphs because it's mainly the graphs that have been distorting the way people view the virus instead of following grandma's advice and getting out in the sunshine and fresh air to get rid of the virus uh, we should stay locked up indoors particularly if you're an elderly person so is it deliberate is it deliberate confusion we think so it's definitely not a cock up because this is being orchestrated in government Mike, you've brought in your J-Hub, so we know that what is going on the back of COVID is the trace and track. We've also got the bubble syndrome, which we've talked about uh, with this gentleman, Per Locke, who's been driving the move towards the bubble system. And of course, we've got the fusion doctrine, which you've spoken about a lot. And uh, the other side of the coin is that we've got the repurposing of government with uh, Cummings in the background there, who's one of the main driving forces. 
Now, I think we can put a line down between these two. They're working together, but to the left, we've got a Stasi state. This is the surveillance system, which is being locked together at amazing speed. But we can see that. But to the right, uh, this is the repurposing of government. Democracy is being dismantled and we are being prepared for the fourth industrial revolution, which means you won't have a job left. Uh, oh, sorry, I'll just add in there, malicious applied psychology. We know that is happening because that's being, drawn, being driven through the Behavioural Insights team. But the left-hand side is at least visible. We can see what's going on. We can read their papers. But on the right-hand side, this is completely hidden. So COVID is being used for a massive change in society. They're calling it repurposing government. We're actually watching a dictatorship. David, we're tight for time, but just to give you an opportunity to comment on that. And then I've got a really amazing article uh, from The Telegraph of all places, which I'll just mention a couple of things from. Well, it's, it's very interesting you raise the difference between what's seen and what's hidden. This is uh, how many deceptions uh, are perpetrated, including ones regarding law and statute and legislation. That it's, it's, we use smoke to obscure what's happening, and we have a mirror. So what seems to be real is, in fact, merely a reflection of something else. Uh, more on that, um, perhaps an extra time. Indeed. Uh, we'll just bring you to a Telegraph article, which should uh, come up on screen. Where are we? There we are. So Janet Daly from The Telegraph. We appear to be blindly accepting an insidious denial of our liberties. The obsession with the Dominic Cummings saga has deflected attention from more serious issues. This lady in general, spot on, she said that uh, what Cummings showed was that while people were quietly or apparently quietly sat in the background happy to be locked down when they realized that he was flaunting the rules they actually started to show their real anger and there was a lot of letters and emails sent to MPs saying what on earth is going on so let me just take you in a little bit of what she says here um, she says that basically people were bullied into silence and that uh, it was conditions within communities which meant the people who actually said we don't like what's going on didn't say anything and that's interesting Mike isn't it because that was detailed specifically in the applied psychological adv advice to SAGE where they were planning to turn one section of the community against mm -hmm. the others in order to keep people quiet so that appears in this article but it gets here because she says Serious debate has been drowned out, so let's have the proper argument, shall we? We can start by asking the right question, which is to say the ones that journalists at the Downing Street briefing did not bother to ask at last week's launch of the test and trace system that is now proposed as the only way out of the lockdown. So criticism by a journalist of other journalists that they're not asking the key questions. And she says this, should a free society tolerate the introduction of a witch finder surveillance system in which anyone who happens to test positive for a virus is permitted to trigger the incarceration of any other person for 14 days, possibly in solitary confinement, if he or she is a member of us, is the sole member of the household. So this is a pretty hard hitting um, uh, article 
and it basically says that um, it's it's just leaving people to tell on each other mm. in a surveillance system and this is taking away our democracy she's summing it up yes that was excellent that was that was really good i'm glad you covered that i saw that as well over the weekend uh, and i'm glad you covered that and it's good to see that that there is some heart left in uh, the mainstream press in at least one or two odd corners and david what we should say is for our viewers and listeners that janet daly is seeing the right things she should now get emails of support and encouragement and she should get further evidence to uh, support the concerns that she's got so she may be working for the telegraph but she should be supported with what she's actually written so far um we're over time will we do one more one more okay we'll do one we've more. we've been well behaved yeah. i think we can do one more okay well it's maybe one that people uh, don't want to hear about but here we go anyway uh, the brexit neg negotiations uh, resume tomorrow of course uh, They've been very silent about this because of COVID-19, uh, but uh, UK and EU wanting to uh, pursue this uh, agreement uh, over a future relationship. Uh, that's the second part of the Brexit process. Um, and uh, well, the question is, are they making any progress on this? Um, well, of course, this is the um, this is the timetable for it. And uh, so by July, Britain has to agree or not to an extension of the uh, transition period. If we don't have an extension transition period, uh, Britain will apparently leave on the December the 31st with without a deal. Uh, so we're right back into this uh, scenario again. Um, and uh, but we've got to remember what it was that the EU is wanting to uh, create here. Uh, first of all, a living level playing field, of course. Uh, well, are we going to end up with that? We'll see in a second. Uh, but of course, uh, a very large part of this is uh, the security partnership, which Britain still uh, refuses to discuss, as we can see here, because these are the negotiating groups, uh, trade and goods, trade and services, uh, level playing field, as we've said, transport, uh, energy, civil nuclear cooperation, fisheries, mobility, law enforcement, uh, thematic cooperation, uh, and participation in UNO programs. Those are the main negotiating groups that they're uh, covering. Uh, horizontal arrangements and governance we have to forget that as well i wasn't quite sure uh, whether that was something to do with ursula von der leyen uh, and and activities involving her i wasn't sure about that but anyway this was the key point the european commission notes that the united kingdom proposes not to include a negotiating group dedicated to cooperation on foreign security and defense foreign policy security and defense despite the fact that that uh, was 50 percent of the future relationship uh, agreement uh, potentially um, so uh, we don't want to talk about that w the question is do we want uh, a level playing field or is it that even what's on offer well apparently not because here's uh, David Frost who is the UK chief negotiator on this uh, saying the major obstacle in the negotiations at the moment is represented by unbalanced proposals uh, that would see the UK still bind to EU law or standards after Brexit which is unprecedented in free trade ag agreements so that's the british position it seems to be shift have shifted somewhat from uh the middle of last year uh very concerned that there's not a level playing field being offered here but we still don't want to mention defense and security publicly uh, but in the meantime then the house of lords eu select committee has produced a report uh, and really what's it about uh, well, they're saying uh, the combination of uncertainty, lack of momentum and lack of 
uh, time compounded by the shock of the COVID-19 pandemic is a potential threat to the economic prosperity and political stability in Northern Ireland. I should have mentioned that the report is about uh, effectively the backstop. Uh, and uh, well, what is going on with the backstop? It's pretty unclear. Um, they say the agreement of the revised protocol on Ireland, Northern Ireland in October 2019 paved the way for the UK to leave on the 31st of January 2020. Yet the months since then have been characterised by uncertainty. On one hand, the UK government has been unable to explain precisely or consistently what it agreed with the EU. On the other hand, the EU's insistence on the rules are the rules has left Northern Ireland businesses fearing that there will be no flexibility to apply the protocol proportionately. This has led to a diminution of trust between the two sides and the upshot that Northern Ireland has felt like a pawn in the game. Well, indeed, and I have to say that the general consensus amongst people that I'm talking to from, from back home uh, is that uh, they are expecting that the dirty deed is going to be done, David, and there will be a border down the Irish Sea. The backstop hasn't gone away. The backstop that everybody was arguing about through the whole of 2019 hasn't gone away. It looks like uh, there's no statement, proper statement from the British government about what the actual arrangement is going to be. The uh, House of Lords EU Select Committee highlighting that here. Uh, but the question is, how does this all fit in with the overall negotiations, which seem to be um, collapsing in a heap of, uh, well, whatever? It's very interesting and uh, not at all clear. Um, the backstop, I'm sure you're absolutely right about the backstop and the border down the Irish Sea. I would hope we would have a bridge across that. Uh, no sign of that moving forward yet. Um, the, the the lack of any um, obvious discussion on defence uh, reminds me of the film In the Loop, where the um, discussion of the War Committee um, they was was hidden under the blandest possible title, so they called it the Future Planning Committee. Um, so we've got participation in community programmes, that is part of it's in there. Security, a reference to security, that's as part of it in there. And a, and a reference to governance, that's part of it in there. So they are discussing these things. It is concerning that the British government were the ones who wanted to make this so obscure. Uh, absolutely. Well, dirty deeds are done in the dark, aren't they? So that's uh, the simple answer to that one, I think. We'll leave it there. I think so. We'll say thank you very much for our viewers and listeners for joining us. Thank you to everybody that's uh, donated or taken out subscriptions. It's really wonderful to get that support. Thank you also to the people that have written letters of support to us. We had a letter um, from Australia today thanking us for what we do. Uh, plus also helping with AV11. That was very much appreciated. We'll leave it there. Don't sit at home worrying. Speak out, share the information and, of course, challenge the government over its disastrous COVID-19 lockdown. Mm. We'll be back on Wednesday. Wednesday. Thank yes. you. Bye-bye.